This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. What do the Red Cross, Wikipedia, and the American Kite Flyers Association have in common? They all use the .org domain to power their websites, connecting people and communities to actively engage for a good purpose. Managed by the Public Interest Registry, the .org domain has given voice to the world's most trusted organizations for over 30 years. .org is open for anyone who wants to establish credibility within their community, while making a positive impact in the world. The .org domain extension was established as one of the first top-level domains in 1985, alongside .com, .net, and a handful of others. In 2002, administration over the domain was awarded to the Public Interest Registry, a nonprofit established by the Internet Society to run the extension. The Internet Society, better known as ISOC, was founded in 1992 by Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf, two Internet pioneers to assist with standards development. Now, ISOC initially struggled to maintain financial stability, and the awarding of the .org extension in 2002 placed it on solid financial footing. The domain extension grew to be favored by the public interest and nonprofit community, and with over 10 million registered domains, it generates significant recurring revenue, as registrants pay to renew their domain name registration each year. I should note that I played a very small role in the Public Interest Registry, serving on its inaugural advisory council and chairing its policy committee. Earlier this year, ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, the entity that manages the domain name system, reached a new registry agreement with PIR that removed price caps that had previously been in place. Within months, PIR announced that it had been purchased by Ethos Capital, a private equity firm that includes a former CEO of ICANN among its founders. With a rumored purchase price of over a billion dollars, there's big money for ISOC, but the deal has left the nonprofit community worried about potential price increases and policy changes to the domain that could impact online speech. Elliot Harmon, activism director with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, recently wrote about the issue and has been working on a campaign with NGOs from around the world opposed to the deal. He joined me on the podcast to discuss the background behind .org, the concerns with the sale, and what can be done about it. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. Yeah, I'm so glad that that you've joined because this is an issue that is really, I think, capturing the civil society and the internet governance world by storm. You recently wrote a post on behalf of the EFF and dozens of civil society groups expressing concern with a proposed sale of the .org domain. And I want to try to unpack the issues that are associated with the sale, why people are uh, as upset as they are. But why don't we start with some of the basics? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People people use domain names, of course, every day, but many people don't, I think, pay much attention to internet governance or domain name-specific issues. So why don't we just start with what is the .org domain? So what we're, what we're talking about here is when you look at any website that has a, uh, you know, ElliotHarman.org or EFF.org or Walmart.com or whatever, um, what we're talking about here is those little three-letter extensions at the end of those 
domain name URLs. Um, and those are referred to as top-level domains or sometimes GTLDs. There is this whole kind of kind of complicated uh, system of regulations and things relating to each of those TLDs. And the truth is, the in a way, the sale of .org was kind of uh, just the most recent string, the most recent event in kind of a long thing that's been taking place over the past year, um, which is this renegotiation of the rules relating to the .org TLD, um, which we can, we can talk about that more if you like, but EFF expressed a number of concerns about that new uh, registry agreement uh, between ICANN and Public Interest Registry, which is the organization that runs the .org TLD, um, we expressed these concerns that a number of things in the agreement were essentially giving the registry a lot more uh, power to kind of unilaterally make policy decisions affecting uh, all of the people who own domains in the .org ecosystem. Um, so we were raising those flags even before the sale was announced. I think that what this announcement has done is it's kind of awakened this entire global NGO sector to this issue that we've now given the registry a great deal more power over our websites and over our communication um, and now that registry is going to be sold to a private equity firm. Okay, so I, I want to come to the sale and, and some of the implications in yeah. just a minute. Um, but first, let's make sure everybody knows the, the players that are involved here. Mm -hmm. You mentioned mm -hmm. Public Interest Registry, or PIR, which runs the .org domain. You mentioned the registry agreement, which... It takes place, which would have been undertaken with ICANN. Can you describe who ICANN is? Because they're also not necessarily well known, but obviously play a, a very significant role as part of the, the governance of this space of the internet. Uh, yeah, so ICANN is the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Um, and this this is the organization whose, whose job it literally is to... Uh, to set those agreements that will determine how each of those uh, TLDs are managed. Okay, so that's ICANN's role. And we have, as you mentioned, a whole series of TLDs. People may be familiar with, of course, the .com extension, the .org, also known, very popular with the NGO community. Then there are country code domains as well, such mm -hmm. as uh, .ca in Canada. Uh, and now hundreds of new extensions as part of ICANN's effort to expand the universe of potential top-level domains or TLDs. I want to get into the, the, the specific sale in just a sec. It's worth noting, I guess, almost as a caveat, that I had some early involvement in the Public Interest Registry, or PIR. Uh, in the very early days, uh, PIR was awarded the, the .org, and PIR was established by an organization known as ISOC, which has representations or groups all, all around the world. In those early years, I actually established an advisory council. I should note that I was a member of that advisory council. And I think the vision at the time was very much that ISOC, which uh, had been created by a bunch of people engaged in the internet, including Vint Cerf, uh, was struggling to find a way to 
have financial sustainability. And Mm -hmm. one of the things when it comes to domain name registries is that they're pretty good about generating a fair amount of revenue. Because, of course, as people register their domain names, renew them every year, there's a nice recurring revenue stream. This was viewed as a really effective revenue stream for for ISOC. And so the PIR, Public Interest Registry, was designed, as the name suggests, to operate a registry in the public interest, generate revenue for ISOC. I, my role was there for, I was on that advisory council for just a couple of years. Uh, but over the years, ISOC's come to rely on that. Uh, and I think people became generally comfortable with it. Big shock to the system, though, just in the last number of weeks, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, we get an announcement. Can you tell us a bit about what the what the announcement entailed? Um, yeah, so the announcement, and I think a lot of people are still kind of reeling from this and attempting to put together all of the pieces of what this means, um, was that ISOC was going to sell, and I'm using air quotes with the word sell, but sell PIR uh, to this uh, private equity company called Ethos Capital, um, and that the nonprofit status of PIR uh, was essentially going to be dissolved, and it, and it was going to run like a for-profit company. ISOC, by the sounds of it, looks to be cashing out, and... The price, I know, hasn't been publicly announced, but the rumors are that it's a billion dollars or more. So we really are talking about something that generates a huge amount of revenue and is clearly very valuable. But for those relying on the .org and recognizing its longstanding public interest uh, approach, the notion that this suddenly shifts to a private equity firm clearly is a, is a, is a major shift and one that, that a lot of people are really upset about. Yeah, I, I I think that that's true, um, and it's funny. Like you even that there's the the those estimates of how much money the sale was when you look at the number of .dot org registrants and the fact that the majority of registrations in the .dot org TLD are are renewals. They're not new registrations. You can just put that math together and start to realize how much money .dot org makes. Yeah, no, and that, and that's always been one of the real values, or why there's been a desire for people to acquire these new top-level do, domains. You want some of those initial registrations, but especially for a top-level domain like the .org that has been around for decades, the legacy value of renewals year after year after year is clearly worth an enormous amount. Mm-hmm. Now, now the EFF's been amongst a whole series of civil society groups and public interest groups from around the world that have launched a, a Save.org campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us, tell me a bit about who's involved and I guess zero in on what exactly is the concerns that, that you've been raising? Sure. Um, so there are a couple of groups kind of running like like parallel campaigns, if, 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 if you will, um, though we're kind of all closely coordinating with each other. The Save.org website which has the very funny URL of save.org.org. That is run by a U.S. organization called N10. Um, N10 is a... Are you, are you familiar with N10, Michael? No, I'm not. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. So they are a, a nonprofit technology capacity building organization um, that has a lot of uh, influence, um, at least in the U.S., in the kind of nonprofit technology world. Uh, they, ha- they hold a big conference every year. 
uh, where all of the uh, folks from nonprofit IT departments or folks that operate as uh, nonprofit IT consultants all get together and share ideas with each other. Um, they're really kind of considered one of the big leaders in the nonprofit technology space in the U.S. Um, so they, I, they, they're the folks who put together that save.org.org website. Um, kind of the the centerpiece of that website, as it were, is this letter uh, that that EFF wrote along with the help of a number of other organizations. Um, when we first sent the letter to ISOC last week, yeah, it was just last Friday, uh, it had 27 signatories on it. Um, now we've decided to keep accepting signatories to it. Now it has well over 100 I, I, I suspect by the time this podcast gets published, it'll be more like two or three hundred. Um, and when you look at those organizations, I think that you you see that this really is an issue that the entire NGO community is thinking about. Um, you have the organizations that I think for for people who sort of travel in EFFE circles are kind of the names that you might expect, like the Free Software Foundation and Public Knowledge. Um, but then there's also a, a number of these groups that are kind of tent poles that provide a great deal of support to the nonprofit community, like N10 and TechSoup. And then on top of those, you have a bunch of these just, you know, long-standing legacy nonprofit organizations like the Girl Scouts and Farm Aid and Greenpeace. Uh, like you're you're really seeing the entire nonprofit sector come out it, to try to defend .org um, in a way that has even surprised me. Okay, so it, it's interesting to see you get so many groups from from different uh, fields all within the NGO world coming together. What are they specifically pointing to in terms of the the concerns with the sale? So our letter. Uh, talks about three primary issues, and I want to stress about all three of these issues that all of them uh, relate right back to that new registry agreement that came out earlier this year. Um, and these are the, the three things that we're saying the new agreement gives too much power to the registry, and we don't trust this company that nobody's ever heard of with that power. Um, the first one, and certainly the one that I think is kind of grabbing the most headlines, is the power to raise .org registration fees without the approval of ICANN or the .org community. We were talking just a second ago about the kind of cash cow that .org is. Um, the, the, the fear of a registry raising those registration fees um, it, and the organizations that rely on .org kind of being this captive audience that's sort of stuck there unless they're able to do a major rebranding um, and is just going to have to give more and more money to this for-profit company. That's the first one. The, the second one um, is, is the ability to uh, develop and implement rights protection mechanisms unilaterally without consulting the .org community. So that's a little wonky, but I can try and unpack that a little bit. Um, there are built into registry agreements 
um, these these provisions having to do with IP enforcement. Um, in the new .org agreement, there is this thing called URS, which stands for <laughs> Uniform Rapid Suspension. Um, and we can talk more about URS if you like, but that's that's baked into the new agreement. But there's also this language that, uh, here, I'll read you the exact language. Registry operator may at its election implement additional protections of the legal rights of third parties. And like full stop, without the multi-stakeholder process that these things have historically gone through, um, now we're just giving the registry kind of the power to decide those things on its own. Um, and that is another frightening power to suddenly hand to this company that might not have a whole lot of history in the nonprofit sector. Um, and then the third one is... Uh, even broader in a way, it's the ability to suspend domain names based on accusations of, quote, activity contrary to applicable law. Um, this is like, and again, how that'll get implemented is a huge question mark. But lots of folks in the NGO community, especially folks in countries that don't have the the protections for freedom of expression that we enjoy in Canada and the United States, when they see that kind of broad enforcement language like activity contrary to applicable law, it scares them and it reminds them of the various ways that 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 state actors have tried to target NGOs with allegations of illegal activity. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you you raise especially the the latter two issues around potential content-related issues with the domain. I can recall that actually when I was back on the, the PIR Advisory Council, I chaired the policy committee. And one of the issues that we grappled with was, was there something different about the .org when you mm -hmm. compared it to some of the other extensions? And, and where we landed was that there was, that because this was a space that was traditionally used by NGOs or others, other groups who might be engaged in freedom of expression or criticism, that even more than you might find in the .com or some of the other TLDs, there needed to be clear safeguards and protections for that kind of speech. And so we actually raised the prospect of changing the dispute resolution policies that were in place and still are in place for the .com extension and said, well, when you apply it to the .org, we need to ensure that there are additional protections for free speech and criticism sites specific to the .org because this is not your typical commercial TLD. That's very true. And I kind of see it as uh, creating this mechanism that was designed for a very specific thing and then trying to apply that apply it to everything else. Um, in my understanding, and you probably have more of this history than I do, because this is going back a couple of years, um, the, the URS, the Uniform Rapid Suspension Mechanism, what that was expressly created for was for the new uh, TLDs that started coming out in the last few years because there was this concern about uh, people essentially taking advantage of this explosion of new TLDs for the purposes of domain squatting. Um, and so they wanted a way to uh, to deal with what you might consider very kind of cut and dry trademark infringement cases. I created this website called Pepsi.com 
business that's claiming to be the Pepsi website. No, it's not. And that's trademark infringement. Um, at the time that the URS was implemented, again, like I said earlier, it was just expressly for the new TLDs, and they intentionally kept that discussion off of the table of whether to expand URS to the legacy TLDs or not. And in fact, before the decision was made to apply it to .org, uh, a working group had been set at ICANN specifically for the purpose of exploring that question um, of applying URS to legacy TLDs and exploring that question in the traditional multi-stakeholder uh, very, very careful way. Um, and then with the new .org agreements, they essentially bypassed all of that and just bilaterally decided uh, with PIR to implement it. Right. No, I, you're quite right about that history, especially. Uh, there's a long-standing history within the ICANN world around this question of expanding the number of top-level domains. And invariably, literally for decades going back to the very founding of the domain name system with John Postel, one of the concerns was coming from the intellectual property community about what would happen if people would scoop up domains. And so a system was established as these new TLDs were brought online uh, to try to create a certain amount of safeguards and bring comfort to the IP community. But that, as you say, is designed for new TLDs. It's not designed for one that's been around for decades. Yeah. And especially going back to your point about the the uniqueness of .org, um, trademark infringement cases or trademark infringement disputes, I should say, between for-profits and non-profits are usually not these kind of cut-and-dry cases that URS was created for, uh, among other reasons because you can use non-commercial use as a defense in a trademark infringement case. Um, there was... there is, I think, among the entire NGO community, this real fear of these systems being used to... Uh, censor things like criticism by nonprofits of for-profit companies. So if, if I'm following the timeline, PIR negotiates with ICANN to remove the price cap. ICANN agrees to remove the price cap. And a number of months later, it's announced that PIR is essentially selling the registry for, we don't know, but a billion dollars or more to a private equity firm. Yeah, and it's hard not to... Like, when you start putting the pieces together, it's hard not to kind of roll your eyes at the whole thing. Um, there was this great article um, on in the Register that I assume you've read that, that lays out a lot of this history, um, that Ethos Capital was founded as a company literally, like, the same week that uh, I can begin to signal that they were planning to to lift the price cap with the new agreement. Right. Um, you know, all of these things happened within very close succession of each other. And when you look at the entire picture together, it, it it's easy to, to suspect that some of these changes might have been made for the purpose of making PIR more valuable. Is there much in the way of response of other responses that are coming, either from ICANN, PIR, ISOC, or others who've been involved in this? There was this one uh, blog post published, I think, in the key points about .org website um, that is claiming to be a response to our letter. 
it's hard not to feel like the response is slightly missing the point, um, uh, particularly on the issue of the ability to create new enforcement mechanisms. Um, it 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 sidesteps those altogether, uh, saying that those would need to be made through this multi-stakeholder process at ICANN when, no, our, our point here is that the agreement gives them power to create a bunch of those enforcement mechanisms unilaterally without going back to ICANN. You've raised these different issues. The response has been underwhelming, to say the least, um, assuming that Ethos Capital and, and PIRI SOC aren't about to back away from this. Um, is there something that, or perhaps you might think otherwise, but it seems unlikely at this stage, is there something that I can, can do? I can, can do? Can they intervene uh, and stop this from happening? Indeed, they can. Uh, and when you look in the registry agreement, um, it says that uh, one that I can has to be notified uh, of a transfer of ownership. Um, and I, 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 I think I understand that, that that notification did happen, but it happened around the same time that the rest of us found out, which was on November 13th. Um, and then within 30 days of that notification, uh, I can, under certain, certain scenarios, uh, can, can intervene to stop it. Um, I understand that the, the Internet, Internet Commerce Association, ICA, uh, that, that they have filed a formal request to ICANN to intervene. Um, at the same time as all of this is happening, uh, we are also in the midst of negotiating with ICANN about our request for reconsideration of the registry agreement. And in our uh, communication with ICANN about that, we've been underscoring that although the sale doesn't change our underlying points about the flaws in the agreement, it does certainly magnify the urgency here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a there's a number of moving parts. You've got your request for reconsideration of the regist- of the registry agreement itself. You've got concerns about the sale that as we've been talking about, connecting the dots seem somewhat correlated. Uh, and we've got a number of groups speaking out. For those mm-hmm. listening in, concerned individuals, uh, is there something they can do? Uh, yes, there is. Um, so if you go either to that uh, save.org.org website I mentioned a minute ago, or you go to act.eff.org, you'll find this petition um, that is that same letter uh, that we're sending to ISOC. You can sign that petition and we will deliver your signatures to ISOC. If you represent an organization that will somehow be impacted by this sale, we're also asking organizations to continue adding their names to our letter. Like I mentioned earlier, there are over a hundred organizations on that list now. And at the rate it's going, I suspect by the time people are listening to this, it'll be quite a bit higher than that. Um, But organizations that'll be impacted, which includes nonprofits, includes, we've been hearing a lot from nonprofit consultants, people who run various small businesses partnering closely with the nonprofit community. Um, And all of those folks have been adding their signatures. 
Right. Well, I mean, given that kind of outcry, just and it, the issue, just as, as we've been saying, has only really just surfaced in the minds of many. It seems like we're, we haven't heard the last of this. It sounds like this is one this is one of those Internet governance issues that is going to continue to raise quite a lot of concerns. And organizations like ICANN are, are going to have to, I think, provide a stronger justification than we've seen to date uh, for yeah. why this should be allowed to go ahead. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And to me, this kind of goes to a much bigger question about how these decisions should be made for the internet. Um, it, it seems to me, and I'll, I'll mention again that I have not been doing this as long as you have, Michael, but it seems to me that we're moving more and more away from that true multi-stakeholder decision-making process into a process that moves more and more of that decision-making power from the public and to the registries. Um, And I think that that's a really dangerous pivot. And I'm not sure how far down the path we're going to go here, but I don't think that the end is a place that we want the internet to be in. Yeah, you re- you raise, I think, an excellent point that, that highlights that this this might be the thin edge of the wedge or at least a continuation of, of a, a bit of a shift where I think public confidence for those that had focused on internet governance for many years was premised on this notion of a multi-stakeholder approach where mm-hmm. all groups have a say in the internet and have a have a say in that kind of policy development. And if you begin to shift much of the decision-making away from that kind of fora, it calls into question the kind of internet we end up with and the confidence we have in the sorts of policies and decisions that are developed. I agree. Okay, Elliot, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.